this time of night. There's not much going on out there. It looks like we do have some slow-moving traffic heading into Gilroy near the 25 exit, 10 miles per hour there. That's a brief slowdown, though, barely worth mentioning. The time is now 8.06. Up next, it's time for Healing Journeys. Keep it tuned in. KSEO Santa Cruz. Thank you so much for listening to Healing Journeys. My name is Aaron Cloudon, and this is a show where we explore uh, the best way to empower your life through a variety of different ways uh, to live your authentic self. Tonight, my guest is Dr. Alex Malkumian, the founder of the Financial Psychology Center. Hello, Dr. Malkumian. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much, Aaron. Pleasure to be on the show. Right on. Um, first and foremost, tell us what the Financial Psychology Center is and what inspired you to create it. Well, uh, thank you so much again for having me on the show. And Financial Psychology Center is an agency here in Los Angeles that focuses on uh, healing our uh, clients' uh, psychology behind money. And really how this idea came about was um, during my clinical practice as a, as a clinical psychologist. Um, this was up on the coattails of the 20, 2008 and 9 recession. And um, at that point, I was really seeing a lot of uh, clients come in and talk about stress related to money. And at that point, I really became perplexed and really interested in helping my clients uh, and empowering my clients on their journey to uh, solve these problems that they, they were having uh, with their finances. And that's how the idea for Financial Psychology Center came about. Well, that's fantastic. So you've been at this then for 13 years or it just became the idea? How long have you guys been going then? After How, how long, is, when did you create it? So the Financial Psychology Center morphed uh, had uh, several morphings, and I would say at its current uh, stage, we're at our third sort of rendition, and, and uh, FBC uh, came about in 2018 in this latest rendition. Okay, and because you're based out of L.A., do you uh, have clients that you can do Zoom with or anything of that nature if, if somebody in our area wanted to get a hold of you in regards to your services? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so, unfortunately, the pandemic has caused a lot of uh, uh, turmoil and upheaval and uh, a lot of financial stress as well, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point in the show. But the beauty and the, and the positive thing about the pandemic is the ability for us to connect virtually via Zoom or many other um, or several other uh, platforms like Skype as well. So whether uh, our clients are in California or even nationwide, we're able to connect with them. I'm so glad you brought up the pandemic because that was one of my first questions. Like, what have you seen since the beginning of the pandemic and now that it's kind of drawn out and now that it seems to be rising up again in regards to people's financial stresses? Well, I think everybody went into uh, shock, right? That, that was our overall initial sure. reaction, I think. Uh, it's something that came out so much of, out of left field that nobody was really expecting it. I mean, if, we, if we, I would have talked, spoke to you on February 28th of 2020, you would have had uh, no idea, right? And so the same for myself. Um, you know, fast forward to March and early April, I think everybody was dealing with the shock of this thing coming from left field. And, um, you know, the way we as psychologists and as scientists end up looking at, at uh, something like this pandemic, um, the, the trigger and the stress that uh, uh, ensued as a result of this pandemic you know, sent most of our nation, or actually <laughs> globally, um, into the uh, fight, flight, and freeze response, which is a natural human response to uh, any sort of stress. So, uh, you know, initially the, you know, the shock was the, the, the first sort of wave of our response. And then we kind of got into these three different groups. Some people, um, you know, kind of went into flight mode and, and they kind of hid out in their, their, their apartments and, and their homes. 
Um, some people just froze and didn't know what to do next, uh, whether to stay at home or to, you know, uh, pursue, uh, you know, their work. And then some people kind of got back into the spike uh, mode, and, and that looked like, <laughs> I don't know if you're uh, ever on LinkedIn or on social media, but there was several people I remember at the time, you know, posting things like, this is not going to get me down. I'm going to get right back on my horse, and that's what uh, the fight mode looks like in a pandemic scenario. And and how does that relate to money, the, these three different ways, the, the fight, flight, or, you know, freeze kind of mode? How is that related to people's finances as far as you've seen? Well, uh, great question. I think initially, uh, you know, the pandemic really hit, every, you know, quite a few people in, in the wallet, and we didn't know what to do. So, um, you know, the person who is freezing, they, they again, are in on this no-man's land of inability to make a choice, right? Do I go back to work? Do I not? Um, and that's a really uh, overwhelming uh, place to be mentally. The person who is in flight mode uh, really just doesn't want to have anything to do with, you know, the idea of paying bills, earnings. So they're kind of a, in, in a, an, an avoidance mode. And, um, you know, the person who is in flight mode, they're sort of <laughs> uh, in the healthiest position to getting back into earning and, and kind of rallying up the, the, uh, the troops to be able to uh, continue their, their, their earning, their, their saving, and their spending as well. So. It's interesting you brought up avoidance because I was looking at that on, your, um, on some of your posts and in your courses. And so... The avoidance in regards to money, that, that's been going on for many people for a long time. I know I even participated in myself in, in some of my earlier years. Can you kind of address what causes that or the variety of things that causes that in people to avoid like looking an, taking an honest look at their money and dealing with it? Sure. I, I think the easiest way to explain it would be it's such a uh, normal part of human nature to avoid something that we're that we are afraid of or find scary. And for a lot of people, money is scary. Money is not taught in our schools necessarily. Money may not be taught in, in our families. And money is not something that we talk about um, around the dinner table or even with friends. So um, in sort of the financial circles or in the financial psychology circles, we have a term called the money taboo. And, uh, you know, that's a very descriptive term that obviously means that th there is a, a, a lack of discussion, a lack of awareness about what and how, how to deal with money and what to do with it. So uh, the lack of knowledge, the lack of understanding can be very scary, and we can judge ourselves for not knowing what the smartest thing to do with money is. Yeah, I was noticing that as well when I was doing some research on you, yours is some people are intimidated because they're not money masters but just taking a, a look and even just having some simple basic knowledge in regards to how money works can be very empowering from what uh what it seemed like you guys were saying on your on your blogs and in your website that you don't have to be a money master you don't have to be warren buffett to just kind of mm -hmm. take a look at your stuff there's definitely you know many layers and many levels to this conversation um, you know, I have a saying that uh, the many layers of uh, our financial psychology is what makes personal finance personal, right? So uh, the layers could be, you know, the, the first layer would be the practical layer, right? Um, and that's how culturally we, we look at money or economists primarily look at money as, as a math equation, right? Um, if I don't overspend um, and I keep within my budget and I stay within my spending plan, then I should be good. And so we can keep it at that uh, sort of mathematical equation level. We can keep it at the behavioral level. And as long as we're able to be disciplined and uh, uh, empowered uh, to carry out, you know, the, 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 the right actions, we will be okay. Right? But... Um, as we chatted about this a little bit earlier, before the show, you know, 
we're human, as human beings, we're not necessarily the most rational and not the most uh, disciplined, <laughs> <laughs> right? And we can be impulsive and, and temperamental and everything in between. And this is how I really got interested in, in, uh, in this particular field of like, overall psychology is that, A, nobody was talking about these topics. And there was such a, you know, again, a, a black hole uh, as far as research, as far as knowledge, as far as discussions and communication around why do we do what we do with money. And that's really what financial psychology is about. Yeah, I, I really love that because when we talked earlier, I had brought up some of the financial gurus and, and it seemed like they kind of mildly touch on the emotion around it but not really it's just like just go do it just go you know they kind of take the nike attitude of just go do it and that's not so simple you know especially if you haven't identified what the emotions are around it why you're avoiding it or overspending or, or whatever your financial triggers are and and can you kind of talk to that a little bit more absolutely we're I love some of the names that we discussed, um, and they were actually my uh, sort of uh, the people that I followed as I was getting into the field of financial psychology, the, the, the Tony Robinses, the Susie Orman, the, mm -hmm. uh, Dave Ramsey, and David Box. Um, you know, all of them, what I, the way I kind of uh, think of them is, is they're able to apply um, you know, psychological tenets to the field of, of finance. And uh, when I started reading some of their books, uh, I started, started cashing myself on that this is, this is applied psychology, right? That, you know, they're using some of the techniques I learned in school and, and uh, my master's program as I was getting my uh, clinical degree. And so uh, when I saw that they were using some of these uh, similar techniques, uh, you know, I, I felt empowered and, and really interested in how much more can I do to help so many other people, uh, you know, uh, define and, and understand their relationship with money. And I, as you just said, you know, we can't change something that we don't know we have a problem with. Mm -hmm. right? So it takes, a, you know, a little bit of consciousness, a little bit of understanding, a little insight to know what is it that needs that, that is, uh, uh, you know, that we're having a problem with. What is it that's causing me the stress? What is it that's causing me the pain? Is it that I'm avoiding dealing with, uh, you know, my money? Is it the fact that I'm not earning enough and I'm always overspending? Is it that I'm actually, you know, earning enough, but, you know, I'm not able to budget my money uh, and, and manage my money properly? So, uh, you know, there's, there's just... Uh, an initial sort of awareness and insight that, you know, we have to apply with our clients. That, that's interesting because I, I was reading a little bit about um, under-earning and, and people, um, people not not earning to their potential. I mean, how does somebody get over that? I, I think that's a common problem, so much so that it's even been addressed kind of in the government these days with trying to raise minimum wage and, and that sort of thing. <laughs> What, do you know what kind of call? I mean, obviously everybody's unique, but can you kind of speak to the whole under-earning mentality and not living to potential? I think that's a really broad term. Okay. <laughs> we can start. We can start at uh, the minimum wage, right? And and uh, the the inability to provide for our basic needs. That's the biggest hurdle that we have to jump over. Help our clients jump over at FTC, right? Um, nothing else really matters, uh, for, even psychologically, unless you have food on the table, you have shelter over your head, a roof over your head, and, you know, you, you're in a safe place. You okay. have safety, right? Mm -hmm. If you're struggling with those issues, and that's really straight out of um, a book of psychology, and is based on a theory by um, Abraham Maslow, who talked about the hierarchy of needs, and I'm sure so many of us are familiar with that. Um, the infamous uh, pyramid image, right? Right. At the bottom of that pyramid of, of basic human needs are uh, food, shelter, and safety. And so when, you know, we're talking about minimum wage, um, you know, we're talking about somebody struggling at the most basic level and how does that impact 
um, their overall psychology? Are they able to focus on, you know, other things, enjoying life, or is it just, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, fixation on putting food on the table and, and that's all they can think about? Wow, yeah. So, that, I mean, that's all they... It, imagine they can't even really focus on much else. That That's fascinating. Right. And, and the second part of that would be if they're unable to focus on anything else, the idea of, you know, finding time to find another job to expand your skill set to, to be able to earn more is so much more um, esoteric at that point uh, when you're the only thing you have time and energy to do is focus on earning that paycheck to provide uh, for your basic needs. Yeah, and I and I'm guessing, and I'm and this is a huge assumption, based on the pandemic and those who froze and those who hunkered down out of fear, then if they have no income coming in, and you know the, there must have been a lot of that going on, this whole the hierarchy of needs as well as just the fear of the message they're getting constantly that, you know, they could be the next one to die or their grandparents or something. And then being forced to kind of go out into fight mode, being forced to go out and work. Have you seen any of that or has that come up at all? Absolutely. The level of fear and stress has definitely, um, you know, gone up exponentially. The uh, what you're reminding me of is, um, you know, not only was it sort of the normal levels of stress, but it, you know, the pandemic really kicked it into high gear, and um, the amount of, or, or the acuity of the stress, to use a bit of a clinical word, um, you know, was at such a higher level that, um, you know, it, it came from not only being unable to maybe find work which would be, you know, not abnormal in regular times. But it was the idea that, you know, if you were employed in the restaurant business or if you were employed in a travel business, entire industries were being wiped out. Right. And that was, I think, a much scarier psychological uh, stressor than anything we've seen uh, in, in any year, in, in our lifetimes, basically. Wow. So the the other thing I want to talk about you had a, you have a whole course about love and money. Can you kind of broadly let us know about that? Sure. So um, the love and money course is specifically geared to for couples, and what we what the research has shown is that uh, well being and financial well being. Uh, greatly increases or decreases uh, the overall satisfaction uh, of the couple with the relationship. So we started looking at how can we help to improve, uh, you know, the relationships of those couples who are, you know, suffering and primarily suffering at the hands of money. And so we developed this course um, where we're helping each individual uh, to understand and, and relate better to their financial journey and their relationship with money. And then they can, can come together as a couple and, and utilize some of the tools that we employ in the Love and Money course to help be, uh, and be able to have better communication around their, uh, their finances. Um, there's a couple of things that I'd like to mention. One is that, um, you know, starting with you know, the uh, last recession, as I, as I mentioned, uh -huh. um, the American Psychological Association started to do a survey called the uh, American Stress in America Survey. And I'm going to ask you, what do you think the number one stressor for most Americans is? Well, I would say money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a trick question, Aaron. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So uh, with the number one stressor uh, being money, you know, it's definitely something that affects every relationship and every couple and, and almost every individual, right? Right, of course. Um, and going forward with that, if we look at the top three stressors on, on that yearly survey, we can actually see that it's number one, money, number two is divorce, and number three is employment. And money plays a huge part in both 
be having, you know, basically having irreconcilable differences in the case of divorce. And why do we go to work? And why do why are we stressed about employment? Is you know our ability to earn and have a profession and you know give back to our community. So money is hugely tied up in that as well. And, and so go ahead. Sorry. If we look at um, the number top three stressors, money is involved in eighty percent of our overall stress. Wow, that that's a very high number. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I, I saw with the. Um, with the love and money course, there was something called money dates. Can you explain what those are? Absolutely. So um, I think the the uh, conversations about money that we are not having as a, a result of the money taboo uh-huh. is why we basically um, outline a specific intervention that's called a money date. So. <laughs> Uh, one of the things <laughs> that uh, our couples go through is the fact that they have some impasses, they have some conflicts, they have tensions around money. And when you have con- conflicts and tensions, you either don't talk about it and don't schedule you know, these discussions, or a lot of times these, these discussions turn into sort of drag-out fights, which you know we don't support either, <laughs> either one of those extremes. <laughs> And so the idea of the money day is to schedule a, a meeting between, you know, you and your loved one, you and your significant other, right. but also have set ground rules for how and how that's, that money day is going to happen, what is going to be, you know, appropriate language to use. And all of those rules have to be agreed upon uh, before the money day happens. And with those, are are you starting them out with someone like yourself or another therapist and then moving them on to doing it independently together, or is there a little bit of both? How, how does that work? We've done both. We've done both. And, and uh, initially, uh, the best way to do it would be to see a professional uh, like myself or one of our colleagues from FBC model appropriate behavior for the couple. Right. And also... Um, basically mediate, you know, the first several money dates so that, um, you know, neither of the partners feel like, you know, one person is, is getting a bigger share of the pie, so to speak, uh, compared to the other. Right. And so I guess that brings up a lot of different stuff, especially if one is uh, the primary earner or makes more than the other and then one's a bigger spender and then responsibilities of what's bought for the house. I can imagine this could go on and on and could be quite a rabbit hole. Absolutely. This is, this is why it's such a you know, deep and in-depth topic. It's not, um, <laughs> there's no, you know, uh, simple solution, but the, the most important solution is to have conversations and have an ongoing um, uh, process for being able to solve some of these issues. I think the overall goal is not necessarily to eradicate, you know, uh, problems going forward. Um, in any relationship, the expectation of not having any, you know, major issues is probably <laughs> probably unreasonable. We're always right. going to have little bickering fights. It's how you deal with them as a couple. So it seems to me like based on the, the way the conversation is going here so far that avoidance is like a like a number one thing like really just creating a conversation and putting it out there in the open then would I would think or help alleviate a lot of the stress just because you're facing what's there. Absolutely and and this is nothing novel or new but right. um one of the you know the go-to strategies in eradicating uh, uh, any sort of stress is to be able to diffuse the emotional energy and 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 the beliefs behind um, the 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 ensuing stressor. So um, actually, one of the things that I can kind of uh, inform your audience about is um one of the pioneers of financial psychology and dr brad Ponce, came up with uh the four most common beliefs about money and um they fall into four categories and avoidance is one of them so money avoidance is 
you know, basically when, when uh, either the person or the couple or the whole is not able to look at, you know, their, um, their, their behavior with money. The next one would be money status. Um, and those beliefs come with the fact that, um, you know, if, if, I, if, if I wear the right brand, if I, if I have the right house in the right, na- uh, right neighborhood, if my car is the right car, then I feel okay. And of course, Los Angeles is, is probably one of one of the capitals of that sort of uh, you know financial belief, right? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, we have it up yeah. here too. I mean, with Silicon Valley right up the road, and and mm-hmm. I've worked in mm-hmm. selling luxury items, and it's interesting because so many times, so many people that are buying these luxury items from me, whether they be RVs or luxury vehicles. Uh, many times they're the ones with the the credit that's like borderline or even straight up bad that I I can't get them done. It, it, it's right. fascinating, actually. Exactly. And, and I, I love that you brought that in because you know such a luxury item like an RV uh, all of a sudden becomes a need. If <laughs> we're going to go back to right. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? All of a sudden, because my buddy has, you know, an RV um, much better than mine, or, or I don't even have one, then I feel less than, than him. And, and we call this, this mentality compare and despair, right? Um, huh, interesting. So uh, when we compare ourselves to what our friends have, and this is literally the premise for keeping up with the Joneses and keeping up with the Kardashians, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, there's always going to be somebody who has a better, you know, home or car or, you know, their life looks uh, like it's much better on the outside. So that's um, uh, the money status belief system. Um, and then the, 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 another one, uh, the third one, I think, uh, is the money worship. The money worshippers believe that um, you know money will be the answer to all of their problems. So as long as they can they can earn, they will out earn their bad money habits. Huh, that's fascinating. So they they just figure the more money they make, the more their exactly. problems are going to go away. Mm-hmm. Oh man. So does that because uh, you you guys talked a little bit about hoarding money? Does that kind of go with that? Well, uh, great segue. That's the fourth category. And <laughs> right on. Uh, you're right on point. Uh, the hoarders actually go into a separate category called money vigilance. Of the four, they're actually sort of present the most, most healthy because it's nice to be vigilant. It's nice to be practical about money. But they kind of take it over the top. Um, or if, it, if they take it over the top, then they become sort of the financial hoarders where they're actually not buying uh, themselves new pairs of socks and, and walking around with holes in their socks because uh, it would be too much money to spend on themselves, right? And that's, uh-huh. that's why it's called financial hoarding. They're doing it at their own detriment, and they're doing it because they have a um, – unhealthy uh, relationship with money and and uh, they're overly attached to every single penny and and do they justify it with with stuff like oh well I've got to leave my kids something or what will happen if I die so uh, I mean what sort of rationale do they use when when continuing to hoard hoard money even usually beyond what they can spend within their lifetime I'll give you a, a a confidential story from sure. my practice, okay. from the FBC practice. And so I was, um, I was working with a couple, and the narrative was that um, they got together, um, and <clears throat> he was the primary breadwinner. She was a nurse but didn't make as much. And, you know, her family, her childhood, and family of origin never really managed money well. And so when she met, let's say, John Doe, <laughs> right. uh, her partner, um, she was really attracted to the fact that he was able to manage his finances and had everything in order and uh, seemed very responsible. And um, sort of the next part of that narrative is that um, she felt cared for and loved the even courting that uh, went along with his financial responsibility. 
and financial accountability. So, um, you know, one of the narratives and beliefs that she was operating off of, and primarily unconscious, is that she just wanted to be taken care of. She didn't want to know how much money was coming in and going out. She didn't want to know how much, um, you know, the bills were. And, you know, that kind of continued for many, many years. Again, she worked as a nurse, mm-hmm. and he worked in the entertainment business. Okay. And so this continued for 20, 30 years. At some point, they talked about having, she brought up having kids. And he said, um, kids are too expensive. I don't want to have kids because of that. And so they didn't have kids. And his whole narrative was, I just want to have enough money to retire on. Wow. And so when they came in for services, um, she outreached to Financial Psychology Center because they were uh, retired for a year. And the idea that uh, they would have enough money never reached um, John Doe. Wow. He was still holding on to every penny, right. even though he promised that he would sort of um, let go of the financial reins once they retire. And so, you know, 30 years worth of work, 30 years worth of promises, 30 years worth of um, not going on all the vacations that, you know, she could have gone on or doing some, you know, house remodels or things like that. You know, all of that culminated in the fact that, um, you know, he had this financial hoarding mentality that no matter what, he wasn't going to let go of his money. Wow. So they never really, haven't really ever enjoyed life because they're just accumulating money. That's so fascinating. Absolutely. I have and she a... was holding on to the idea that at one point, you know, the promise, where he's going to get me to this promised land of retirement. And at 65, finally, we'll be able to enjoy ourselves. So, and then a year passed and, and nothing happened. So she avoided, uh, her, she was in the avoidance then, and he was like enabling that avoidance? Is that, is that how you guys would label it? Are those your terms or what, what are the terms you guys would use in that so scenario? He was, he was the financial hoarder and she was the avoider slash enabler. Okay. Wow, that's mm-hmm. fascinating. That, uh, I, I mean, I get it. Like, there's always that fear that you'll never have enough, and that's all the commercials are saying, do you have enough for retirement? You know, it, 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 that's the constant message. Do you know, talk with a planner now about having enough for retirement. And so what is, you know, knowing what is enough? Like, do you guys help people with knowing what's enough? Absolutely. I think that narrative is hugely under-discussed and un- where it's not discussed enough. Uh-huh. Uh, in our culture, and I think that um, most people don't necessarily think about what is enough on a daily basis. The idea of what is enough only comes in in a narrative from the financial planner or, or estate planner when we're talking about estate planning or retirement planning. Okay, interesting. Another term I wanted to ask you about, which I was looking at on your website, was financial infidelity. Can you, can you talk about that? Absolutely. So financial infidelity is basically having secrecy around how, and how you're spending your money and what you're spending your money on with your partner. Now, uh, most of the time, financial infidelity happens in romantic relationships, but it doesn't have to be exclusively that. And this is something we cover in our Love and Money course. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about the course is not only for romantic couples, but it also could be for business partnerships. And, uh, oh. partnerships but it also can be for um, familiar, familial relationships like father-daughter or mother-son. And when, for instance, at the point of launching, which is, you know, a, a early a young adult, um, early 20s child is trying to leave the nest. Right. And the parents are usually helping that, uh, their, their kid out. Um, at that point, there's a lot of financial discussions that occur. Interesting. So 
when we talk about couples, we actually kind of broaden that idea to not only include romantic couples, but again, you know, professional relationships, um, like business partners and familiar relationships. Right. So to get back to the infidelity um, piece, financial infidelity is anytime you have secrecy between two partners within a couple. It could be romantic couple, and there's a power struggle. Let's say, uh, I mean, most commonly when one partner is the primary breadwinner or the sole breadwinner, mm-hmm. and the, um, the other partner is not earning but is, you know, living off of allowances and is afraid for whatever reason to, um, you know, explain why they want to buy a particular item. Wow. And instead of, <laughs> instead of being vulnerable... And this is what the underlying emotion is, vulnerability. Uh, instead of being vulnerable and honest and coming to their partner to say, hey, this is what I was thinking of buying, and, you know, get, leaving yourself open to being rejected, right? right? They become more secretive, and they end up buying an item. Okay. Now, there's a whole broad range to financial infidelity. It could be, you know, <laughs> uh, I didn't tell my wife or you didn't tell your partner that you went and bought, you know, a $200 item at Target right? or even a $100 item at Target all the way to a full extreme where there's offshore accounts, there's, you know, credit cards being taken out, you know, in, in uh, the partner's name and just a lot of uh, very intricate uh, secrecy around finances. Yeah. And it could be going on for a long time, for like a decade. That's fascinating. And and you're saying this can also happen, you know, between parents and children as well, like where the child, Absolutely. if they're on some... Um, I have one example when um, one of the uh, 25-year-old clients who was probably almost fully supported by a single mom... Um, you know, the dynamic in their relationship was that she felt guilt and shame for being unable to stay with, um, you know, her son's father and, and not being able to provide, you know, a, a really healthy uh, environment as he was growing up. Mm-hmm. So that guilt and shame kind of pushed this whole narrative of financial su- financially supporting her son. But at that point in an unhealthy way. There was a lot of enabling going on. Right. Um, apartments paid, uh, you know, all bills paid. Um, and at a certain point, the, the son actually knew that his mother would not necessarily, you know, approve of certain behaviors and uh, certain purchases. Um, so instead of getting a job, he was, like, gaining... Uh, on video games 14 to 16 hours a day Wow! and was, you know, telling mom that he's looking for work. He was buying all kinds of um, in-game purchases which were costing him a lot of money and that money came from, you know, the, the allowance or, or the, mom that, the, the money that mom was providing and as well as other purchases uh, on top of that. But he knew that she would not approve of of these, you know, gaming-related purchases. So um, he knew that he wouldn't want to be vulnerable and that she would shut it down. So um, that's an example of financial infidelity in a, in a familial couple. The, one of the things I read uh, somewhere on your one of your blogs was about uh, kind of somebody living on a trust fund but never feeling worthy that they could ever do enough or earn enough to then meet their parents' approval. I, I don't even know what you would call that. Uh, uh, did you, I'm pretty sure that's what I, I read it on your blog. I think, I think that culturally, yeah, we call it the, the, the trust fund kid uh, syndrome, <laughs> right. I guess. I don't know if it's a technical or, or official term, but let's go with that. Um, and... Yes, I, I remember vividly yeah, yeah. working with that particular client. Um, you know, their their store, their money story was that, you know, uh, I, I mean, from- money money is something that you know we use 
in our in our coupleship, in our relationship, to sometimes show love. Right. Show different emotions, right? So that's why money can be a source of power struggles, um, or uh, you know, again, it, it helps us to show love when we can't use and communicate that through our words or through our actions, through our our, our touch or body body language. Mm-hmm. And so this was, you know, almost a typical scenario where dad was uber successful and focused on his business, but through this, this client's childhood, you know, the only way she knew that her dad loved her is because um, he would give her money. Wow. You know, 14-hour days of work does not, allow, <laughs> does not allow for, you know, sort of physical contact and, and uh, you know, uh, expression of love verbally, but she knew she can count on, on uh, getting whatever she wanted. Yeah, it, it, it seemed interesting, too, because I, I think the one example that was given was the child was also, like, out working and, and trying, but only to a certain point because they felt like they could never be as successful as the parent, and that was creating a lot of issues. It, it was it was an interest it was a really interesting read if I remember correctly and being somebody who's always been working class and never even remotely had a uh, a, a trust fund I, I've always been in an area of envy in regards to that but then it was like wow I really appreciate kind of more my own little struggles in order to to have my own worthiness it it was fascinating. It, it was a really interesting thing to you know from an outside perspective. It looked like, it always seemed to me like a trust fund person would have it just a great life. But in reality, there's, there's, there's a lot to it there. There's a lot of psychological, you know, a lot of unworthiness issues, which I never would have thought of. Or acting out. I mean, do you see that a lot? Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and again, bringing up that particular client who... It um, doesn't have to be a trust fund, but wh- whenever right. there is uh, enable financial enabling, financial enmeshment, um, you know, there's there's this idea that um, this money does not come unconditionally or with unconditional love. And to use another clinical term, in, in all of these cases, money is what's called triangulated into the relationship, right? So it takes on the predominant emotion of that particular relationship. So, so I just mentioned um, that, you know, on the one hand, the dad wanted to show love and convey, communicate love to his daughter, but also he was very judgmental. And, you know, nothing that the daughter did was good enough professionally and, and in many other aspects as well. But you know, for the purposes of this conversation, we're going to, you know, keep it right. the finances. And um, whenever, it, you know, it was, again, a, a tool of approval or disapproval. So if she did well, he would give her money. If she, if she did not approve, he would not give her money. And so that kind of conditioning over, you know, many years and many decades uh, really shaped, you know, her financial psychology. And by the time I started working her and with her, and she was in her 40s at that point, and dad was gone for about 10 years, um, you know, the, the, her wings were, you know, clipped at that point from all of the sort of psychological association that, uh, you know, with money that, you know, dad sort of instilled in her almost unconsciously. Wow. That's, 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 a, that's such an interesting thing. I mean, do, and what about on the flip side of like the um, the child, you know, out earning the parent rather substantially? Is there is there any have you any seen any sort of like then looking down on the parent or or losing respect for the parent if if the uh, adult child is uber successful and then helping the parent out? Is there any sort of power trips in that regards? Absolutely. There's a term uh, by another financial therapist, um, Lindsay uh, Brian Podlin, and she termed this uh, financial survivor's guilt. And it's not only applicable in, in the scenario that you're describing, but a lot of this 
uh, actually happened throughout the pandemic, where you know some people were doing okay in the pandemic, where <laughs> they uh, they still had jobs, their industry did not crumble and crash, mm-hmm. but you know their sibling or their wife or uh, their one of their best friends is was going through a major financial upheaval as a result of the pandemic. Right. And so, how do you bring up, uh, you know, these uncomfortable conversations? And the underlying feeling is that feeling of financial survival guilt. Um, and to get back to your example, yes, I've had several clients who basically can can point to the exact uh, maybe age that they were when they started earning more than their, their dad or their parents. Mm-hmm. And they were acutely aware of sort of the passing of the torch. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Do, do, do most of us, from what I've seen, most of us kind of earn to the same level as what our parents did. Is that the most common thing you see? Because that appears to be... It's not necessarily our parents, it's our friend circle. Oh. Mm-hmm. Could you explain that further? Sure. I think there's even a, a, like a, a cultural uh, narrative that if we look, tell me who your friends are and then I'll, I'll show you uh, what your, your earning potential is or something to that effect, right? Right, yeah. Like you are, the, you are you're exactly. the average of the five people you hang out with kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So to break out of that mold, it's not necessarily not only your parents, but it's the friend circle that you're hanging out with. So wouldn't that kind of then go to the fact that if you've always hung out in a working class uh, uh, social aspect, and then you would kind of maintain that working class social economics in your life? Absolutely. And I think what you're bringing up is the idea of that money has also a, a uh, cultural aspect to it. There's a cultural language to money. Right. Right. And there's like a working class language to money uh, or working class culture. There is uh, like a, even a geographical difference between like the Midwest versus big city uh, cultural narratives. But, you know, culture is so important because it, it impacts and informs our norms and our values. And so with that, what we value and what we will spend money on greatly depends on, you know, our, 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 our culture. And, and so breaking, breaking out of what the learned behavior is, do you then have to kind of learn a different language? Did you have to learn the language of those that are wealthy if you want to move into that area? Absolutely. And this is why I love the term financial literacy, which encompasses, uh, you know, the, the practical knowledge about money. And you're becoming much more literate. Uh, you're learning the alphabet first, then you're putting those uh, letters together to form words. And then after that, uh, you're able to write sentences. And eventually you'll be able to speak this different language, the language of money. So that's where those kind of those financial gurus that we talked about earlier, like Susie Orman or Robert Kiyosaki or whatever, can be more helpful mm-hmm. to read those types of books. Absolutely. So that you can then just have an understanding of how money works. And you don't have to be a master, right? Just to kind of know basic stuff. Uh, I'm always surprised when I do, doing what I do for a living, I'm amazed at how many people have no idea how credit works. I mean, it's one of the most basic things. Or, or even they it's don't... Very, it's important, and uh, again, for, for some reason, uh, there are certain people who are just afraid of looking at, you know, the, the credit system and learning, uh, you know, these what they feel are intricate and sort of overwhelming uh, concepts. But, um, you know, once you learn them, again, as you said, they're, you know, they're pretty straightforward and they're pretty simple and they're able to empower you to make better choices with your money. 
So one one thing I wanted to talk to you about, because we're running out of time, you and I had talked on the phone previously, and you were talking about the gig economy and uh, the pandemic, and I wondered if you would kind of speak more about that. Yeah, so that's a, a big topic that um, we're addressing at Financial Psychology Center. Um, I, I think... What's happening now more and more, and there's like almost a cultural narrative to it, that you know the pandemic um, affected a lot of uh, people's ability to you know stay employed fully, and more and more between employers and and, and people seeking work, um, people are uh, settling almost for jobs that would not necessarily be uh, full time. But um, our, you know, uh, freelance work, gig work, um, and they have to have several of these jobs in order to make ends meet. And what happens with these freelance uh, uh, gig, uh, gig jobs <clears throat> is they're not compensated at the same, at, 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 at the same uh, remuneration level. Uh, they, don't have, they don't carry as many benefits with them. Uh, whether it's health insurance or otherwise. And so <clears throat> there's a lot of intricate uh, conversations that we're having with our clients um, from the perspective of how much money do you actually need to earn to equate the same, uh, the same amount uh, being fully employed uh, as an employee, a W-2 employee, for instance. How much money do you need to save and put aside uh, because the income is intermittent and it's not like you're getting, you know, a paycheck every two weeks. So um, also, do you need to pay your own taxes? And all these conversations are not necessarily something that, at least for our clients, they're aware of or that they need to think about ahead of time. Right, because when you're 1099, I mean, you're now learning about taxes and how to write things off that you didn't know before as a regular w-2 employee that's a that's a you're forced to become financially literate like pretty quickly too i would imagine absolutely i mean and, and if you don't know how to do that and if you're not a bookkeeper and then being able to actually hire one or hire a tax person when that's something you've never done or you're not making enough money to feel like you afford i would imagine that's a huge stress it is very overwhelming and stressful for a lot of our clients, and it takes a lot of discipline and conversations um, on the practical side to be able to, uh, uh, you know, uh, help them and set up a system that, you know, is, uh, is uh, stress-reducing in the end. That's cool. So you guys are actually helping them have an actual system in place. Do you refer them to people that are going to help them with their taxes and that sort of stuff? Do you work with financial planners? Yeah, we outsource. Yes, correct. We outsource our, our financial planning and financial uh, taxation services. Fantastic. Well, Alex, we're getting pretty close to the end of our time. Um, sorry, Dr. Malkumian. Um, I, I just want to give a quick plug for anybody that's interested or needs to get a hold of Dr. Malkumian. You could uh, check out financialpsychologycenter.com, and there's a ton of information on there about money and emotions, and it's really fantastic. Uh, uh, Dr. Malkumian, is there anything you'd like to say before uh, we, we get off the air here? Love uh, being on the show, and, and uh, as Aaron mentioned, we're available at financialpsychologycenter.com, or we're also available on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Financial Psychology Center. So check us out. Thank you so much, Dr. Malcumian. I really appreciate it, and I hope you all learned something tonight. Have a wonderful evening. Issues and entertainment. That's AM 1080 KSCO.